I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. So I just got this really cool new pair of leggings from blissbodyshop.com, and I just wanted to tell you all about it because they're super cool, and um, they ended up giving me a little code so you all can try them for 15% off. So it's blissbodyshop.com, B-L-I-S-S, blissbodyshop.com. And if you enter Zibby Owens 15, Z-I-B-B-Y-O-T, W-E-N-S-15, you will get 15% off of these leggings. And I wear leggings all the time on the weekends uh, with my big oversized vest and some sort of comfy sweatshirt or something to run around and chase my kids. And I travel in them a lot. And um, I mean, who doesn't need leggings? And I should mention that I work out in them, but I do that far less than all the other things I do. Anyway, go check it out, blissbodyshop.com, and use the code ZibbyOwens15 and get yourself some leggings. I'm here today with Abby Schur, who is a writer and performer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Self, Jane L. Redbook, and many other publications. Her essay from the Modern Love column of the New York Times was recently adapted for the TV series Modern Love. She is the author of five books, Kissing Snowflakes, All the Ways the World Can End, Breaking Free, True Stories of Girls Who Escaped Modern Slavery, Amen, 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 Memoir of a Girl Who Couldn't Stop Praying, and her latest novel, Miss You, Love You, Hate You, Bye. Abby has written and performed for The Second City in Chicago, HBO, Nick Jr., NPR, and Upright Citizens Brigade. She currently hosts the monthly Chuckle Patch comedy show with Molly Reisner. She lives in New Jersey with her husband and three children. Welcome, Abby. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Miss You, Love You, Hate You, Bye. Please tell listeners what this book is about. Yes, this book is about a 16-year-old girl named Hank, short for Hannah Louise, and her best friend Zoe, who is self-destructing. And um, Hank has to decide whether she can save her or if it's better to walk away. And what made you write this book? Um, you know, I've been I've been toying with not saying this, but I didn't want to write this book. <laughs> this was like the last thing I wanted to write, but it kept on coming out. And all my characters were kind of like skirting the issue of an eating disorder and self-destruction. And then my daughter, about a year ago, came home one day and said, I saw this thing on YouTube where people want to be skinny, so they make themselves throw up. And I like, I I just lost it. And I was like, those people, there are a lot of things. Hold on, let me think about how to say this. And then I knew that I had to write this book because I think that there's been a lot of books about the the process of going through a disorder or an addiction, but not as many about being the friend watching it happen and not knowing what to do about it. I had a very close friend in high school who had an eating disorder and was hospitalized for it. And I remember going to visit her in the mm-hmm. hospital and doing everything I could. And mm-hmm. reading this just brought it all back because we were 16 at the time. Mm-hmm. And I had not read any sort of fiction about anybody who had gone through that other than me. And that was so long ago. So it this particularly struck a chord with oh. me, which is why <laughs> perhaps why well, I liked it even more than I might have otherwise. <laughs> Not that I wouldn't have. I didn't say that very well. You know what I mean. Thank I mean, I'm sorry. But. No, no. <laughs> so a lot of this book centers on Zoe and this alternate persona she creates for herself on social media. And yeah. it starts in the beginning where she has this new cat. And she's just like 
I mean, going all over, and you, there's so many references to how many followers, and oh, look, Hank, and look how many I got, and da da da. And she just like is all in on social media and the, this constant need for attention and approval and everything. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you think that plays in, and if there's a any sort of sort of comorbidity with social media addiction, if you will, and eating disorders, really? Yeah, I mean, that's a hard question, a great question. There are not that many studies that I've read about whether social media addiction or personas online really correspond to eating disorders. There was like a a minor study done, I think it was written about in 2018, about the propensity towards anxiety or depression after being really like heavily online. Mm-hmm. I think what struck a chord for me personally, because when I was going through it, it was, we weren't into social media, so not giving away my age too much, but <laughs> that was way before, you know, I beeper before I had an eating <laughs> disorder. Did you really have a beeper? I did have oh, a beeper. Oh, look at you. Yeah, it was fancy. But I think that when you're online, you can make up, obviously, whoever you are and whatever vacation you're taking and how wonderful your life is. And so it's just like another way to avoid telling the truth to someone face-to-face. And so as Zoe, as this character, gets more and more approval online, then she has less of an impetus to like face the facts in person. And it's a push-pull because like she's sort of keeping it a secret, but then she's also more and more revealing herself online mm-hmm. to people. And not many people online are going to be like, well, you, you look sick. That's right. not very often the case. No. And interestingly, all the social media followers, once Zoe goes into treatment, which starts, with, you can tell at the beginning, but so I'm not giving anything away, but all the followers just disappear. She's, yeah. And she tells Hank, she's like, you know what, you were right. Those followers didn't follow me into this inpatient facility. And right. just as quickly as they came, they left. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that people don't talk about as much or think about as much. Like all this effort to build up your followers, like, do they really care? No. I mean, right. what, what is it? Is it true? Anything or not? Yeah. You know I mean, anyway. <laughs> that wasn't even a question. That was sort of a venting. I don't know. To all of our followers out there, who yeah. are you? <laughs> <laughs> don't disappear. <laughs> so Zoe admits to Hank that she wishes she had called her out on this eating disorder later, even though at the time she didn't really want it. And it wasn't just eating disorder, but Zoe has some cutting behavior and lying and a collection of symptoms. So in this letter that she writes, she says, you know that I know that you know that the world knows you're too smart to have bought any of those make-believes I fed you. Sometimes I watched you raise an eyebrow and I thought, today's the day when she's going to crack me open and make me come clean. Only you never did. Yeah. Think about that. What is the onus on the friend to come forward? Do you think that the people struggling want that to happen or not want? I know it's a really broad question. So many broad questions. I'm sorry. No, they're great questions. I'm. I mean, the best kind of questions don't have answers, right? I guess it's so hard. And I know that friends. I mean, I've. It's told from both perspectives. It's told from Zoe and Hank because I've been on both sides of this story. And so as the person with a disorder or with addictive behaviors, I know that when a friend took me aside and said something, I kind of, I don't know, rolled my eyes, laughed in their face. But I will say it did make a mark. Like whether I showed it to them or not, I do think their words had an effect on me. Well, she's noticing 
that I really don't look well or that I'm really not acting like myself. It did make a difference whether I could admit that at the time or not. And the book is dedicated to the friend who was like, enough is enough, you know, and she, yeah, without her, I don't think I would be here today. On the other side, I am horribly afraid of conflict. So when I see somebody who I think is in trouble, I have done all the wrong things. Like I have left, my my most brilliant move was, uh, don't try this at home, was I left a note at the yoga studio where I thought this woman went and then I signed it like anonymously. Like, I think, I think you're having some trouble mm-hmm. or I, I don't know how I phrased it. And she was so upset and like went to the management because like, how could you, how could you say that this is a safe space if somebody's looking at me and leaving a note for me? And I was like, oh yeah, that wasn't a great way to do that. <laughs> oh, but you were trying to help. I was, but I didn't know her circumstances. Like, right, yeah. you know, so it's just, it's a tricky one. I would say when in doubt, say something face to face. That's really the only way, you know, to make it, it forces the issue. Can you tell me about your own experience? I know you wrote a memoir yes. about the loss of your father and how you ended up with a, a collection of OCD habits. And, yeah. But tell me about the eating issues, if you don't mind. I don't mind. Yeah, they didn't actually start for me until like after college. I mean, I was always sort of particular about eating, but really most of my rituals and obsessions were more outwardly. Like I thought I was responsible for everyone else. So I had to pick up anything sharp on the ground and I had to make piles of like glass and piles of metal and and washing my hands until they bled and repeating prayers over and over again. And then I just, you know, fell in with the right crowd that were all doing bad things to their bodies in college. And I guess after after a breakup or something, I don't know, I took it upon myself. I was like, oh, well, this is something. There's this another regimen I can follow where I can become the smallest person ever. And, and actually, I didn't wind up with an intervention or going to any sort of facility until I was 30. Really? Yeah. And what happened then? And, then, and that's a... Note to listeners, it's a really loser time to go to. (laughs) It's like really not a fun time. There's no fun time, but that's a really not fun time to go to rehab. It was a great facility. It was also a horrible facility. Like I hated it when I was there. I see some of the tools they gave me now. But the fact is like I think whenever someone feels like they're in this disorder, or this is my experience, when I was in my disorder, I really felt like, well, I know how to do this. I have a different way of doing this and I'm going to make it. And you're not going to make it. It's like this superhuman feeling like I don't need to eat. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do what they say. But in the end, we all do. We're all human. And how did you, what was, did you have like a hitting bottom type of moment or what did your friend do to get you to treatment or I had and a, were you, I'm sorry, no. were you, did you have bulimia and anorexia or just anorexia? No, I had anorexia and I would just, exercise until I was like, you know, dizzy and weak. And, and I had friends telling me like, you know, you don't look good. And, you know, I took that as a compliment. And on my 30th birthday, I thought I was getting a surprise party. And it was actually my friend and my boyfriend doing an intervention. Surprise! And I was like, <laughs> that was a really crappy birthday. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But, and also... I had, since I was over eight and I was over, 
I mean, I was an independent person. I had to sign myself in, which was another humiliating experience. Not that it's ever going to be fun again, but I think that I think that this feeling of, you know, other people have suffered from this, but I know how to do it the right way just kept on, kept me propelling forward. And what about your parents? I know your father had passed away. Yeah. Did your mother... And I want to read this one quote. This is from the book, and so I'm not saying this is you. This is what you wrote in fiction. But you talked about the effect of losing your father, not just on you, but the effect of essentially losing your mother as she was grieving so deeply, too. You said, I missed my dad, especially his laugh that was so big it shook the floor. But to be honest, I missed my mom more. She was just so distant and frail-looking for so long. She was physically there for me and Gus, but there was all this unaccounted-for time when I feared she'd just disappear. And you talked about how the house kind of fell apart and just nothing Mm -hmm. was working right. Did anything like this happen in your family? And did you have that same sense of missing your mom as well as your dad? Yeah, Definitely. There was, I mean, I talk about in the book, she has like this coat of grief that Mm -hmm. she wears around. And my mom had this horrible brown dress that she, that she wore. I was actually, my, my sister and I were away the night that my dad died, staying at Cousins. And I remember coming home and my mom walked out of the house with that dress on. I was like, I hate that dress. And I was never into fashion or anything, but it just felt like it felt like grief. Like it just looked like somebody dying. And she was sort of here, but not here. I mean, she did her darndest. She had very small kids. She had three small kids and she was suddenly a widow. So she worked so hard to be there for us. And then I really became like very clingy, very, she knew that something was going on with me but she was just trying to keep me going. And so, you know, typical Jewish mom, she was like, you know, you have to eat, you have to eat. But when I went away to college, she was very scared that this is exactly what was going to happen. And can I ask what happened to your dad? Or is it- oh, yeah. I mean, my father died of cancer when I was 11. And so this is kind of a reaction to, I mean, this is a portrayal of my mom after that. But in the book, Hank's dad dies of a heart attack, and that was actually my stepdad. So my mom got up the courage to go out and date, and then she got married, and like within, it wasn't even nine months, he he had a heart attack on the train. And we were all like, we're not doing this again. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. So she really, yeah, she was a trooper. And I and that scene was very much how I experienced it. Like I came in, I got called out of school, and I, you know, he had just moved into our house. I didn't know him that well. I was really not nice to him because he wasn't my dad, and I was so resentful of him. And I kept on thinking. I gave him the silent treatment that morning because he was like really cheery in the morning all the time. I was like, that's unacceptable. <laughs> and my mom was in the office saying like, well, there's. Something has happened. She wasn't making much sense. And she said, David's at the hospital. It wasn't connecting words. And I said, the first thing I said to her was, can I still go to play practice? Because it was such a 16-year-old moment of like, I don't believe you and you don't you don't have any right to step in on my social calendar. Yeah, it was just a very surreal time. How's your mom now? And my mom did pass away. Oh, no. 
I know. I've had a lot of death in my life. About the time, actually, when I went into rehab at 30, she came to visit me. And she she came to visit me and she said, you know, you're doing so well. And then she said, do you mind if I take a nap? And I was so startled because she never asked to do that. And when she went home, she was diagnosed with leukemia and she died shortly after. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a lot to fall into your lap. I mean, yeah. that's a lot to go through by age 30. Yeah. 30 was not my best year. Neither was 11 or 16. <laughs> so how did writing play into this? Did you write to make yourself feel better? Did Definitely. It help? Definitely. Mm. Had you always written or did it really start later? My go-to was always journals and, you know, like my favorite aunt who was very close with my dad and I speak about them a lot in my memoir. She always gave me journals and I was like, you know, you've given me so many journals. I would never, this will last me a lifetime. (laughs) I haven't touched any of them. And then slowly I started writing. And when my mom passed away, that was when I was like, oh, I need to write. I can't go back. I was in the theater and I was not going to go put on makeup and go for an audition. There was no part of me that could like speak, but I could write. And it was so therapeutic. It was really therapeutic. So I started with, I took some, I took a personal essay class with a wonderful woman, wonderful editor also, And that's actually how the first Modern Love came about, was that that was the first essay I sold. And that was shortly after I just decided I was just going to write until I could speak again. Wow. And that essay was the one where you dated the man, Andrew. Yes. Who was old enough to be your father. Yes. And that was the one the Modern Love was based on. Yeah. Wow. Did you ever tell that guy that you wrote the essay about him? I was I just wondering. I did it. No. <laughs> so I'm not explaining this very well, but okay, sorry. Abby wrote an essay about her prof- a professor that yeah. she met and in a beautiful way describes going to his house and his brown socks with the golf clubs on them and how she wanted to cuddle up to him. But really she was trying to cuddle up to her dad and so then realized that she had to get out of there. And Yeah. And he was a real gentleman about it. He really was. No, I've never reached out to him and Some people have reached out to me because it was a job. It was my first job out of college with these, like, professors who were studying AI. I mean, I had no right to be in that job. (laughs) But some other people that I met there have reached out and said, like, is this the Andrew that we worked with? (laughs) So I should look him up. (laughs) I definitely should. But it was really helpful. Again, it was, like, I didn't know that I needed to express these stories until... I really had no other way of communicating. And to this day, I feel that writing helps me say things that I wouldn't be able to say out loud. After you published your Modern Love piece, did that inspire you to try to do a book-length piece? Or what? how did that all happen? It was all that first class, actually. Sue Shapiro, or is this a different um, class? It was before Sue Shapiro. It, Sue Shapiro was another amazing influencer in my life. The first one with... Paula Darrow. Oh, took a class with her too. Did you? I took a class with both of them. <gasps> She's amazing. And she was, I forget even what the prompt was. She just gave us these great prompts and and the sky was the limit. And I think one of them, oh, I think one of them was called a moment when you're out of place, when you feel out of place. And all I could write about was being in the elevator in the rehab facility. And then... It was obviously not about being in the elevator. It was about 
you know, going into this world that I didn't want to be in. And then another one was, oh, forgetting what the prompt was. It was such a, it was such a precise phrase though. And it was about, well, the essay that I wrote was about thinking that I killed someone with a grocery cart. And this was one of my fears, my OCD fears, like for 20 years that I really was sure that I killed someone with a grocery cart, that it had smashed into their car and they had run someone over. And my mom would try to talk me down like I was there, nothing happened. I would make her read the news. So I wrote about just that moment of seeing the grocery cart and thinking that something was, that I couldn't take it back, that somebody was dead because of me. And Paula published it in Self Magazine, and that's what led to my memoir. Wow. Yeah. And then what about the next, the praying? So when did the praying start? Praying was actually long before then. Praying was, I think, as a way to cope with my dad being gone. I just, like, I needed to repeat things over and over again. And so I'd say the Kaddish, and then I'd say the Shema, and then I'd say you know, I'm sorry, and then it became, I'm sorry if I killed him, and I'm sorry if I did this. And it was like a litany of prayers that just, by college, I was praying for hours a day, and I was missing classes. And and then you also had what you have in the book, too, for that Zoe does, and she pretends it's cat scratches, but she has, starts cutting herself as yeah. well, and you talk about it in the book as it being such a release for her. Mm-hmm. And you were doing that as well. Yeah, that was... I mean, that was, to me, that was around the same time as anorexia. It was kind of another way to be like, well, I can control my body. You guys all think that, you know, I look sick. You don't know what I really have underneath my my shirt. You know, I have all these markings and I'm in control. And so now you have your own kids. Yeah. <laughs> I hope they're not listening. <laughs> so so, so you, you got out at 30. Just give me like the two second. How did you get from 30 to like sitting here with five right. books published and three kids and all the rest of it? A miracle. <laughs> well, the boyfriend that got me into rehab is also my husband. So there was at least, you know, that bridge was nice to cross. Yeah, it was a slow slog out. I think that... I think that there's no magic button as far as I know of. There's no like you enter the rehab facility and then they give you the tools and then you leave when you're done. So every day was kind of making a promise with somebody. Like we would literally pinky swear. I pinky swear that I won't cut myself today or, you know, I'm going to go to that bathroom and I'm not going to purge or whatever it was. It was really, they were very much, it wasn't, it wasn't an inpatient facility, I should say. It was an outpatient. So you were there from nine to five or nine to six and you ate nonstop, which was horrible. But then you had this time where you had to be with yourself after you ate and after you listened to these um, talks and after you let out everything that you're feeling. So it was very much like you have to own your recovery because we can't do it for you. That said, I left mostly because my mom was sick and I had to get back to New York because I was in Chicago. And, you know, as the doors were closing behind me, they're like, you still have work to do. Don't forget. I was like, thanks. Thanks for the, thanks for the great times. And then I do think that writing and walking and yoga and listening to meditation, you know, all the all the things that 
I guess we know are good for us but don't want to do did put me on a on a steadier path. And, you know, my body was healthy enough to have three kids, which I'm so grateful for. And, yeah, and I think when somebody asks me how I'm doing, then the best way I can say it is we're, we're all steady. Like, we're all okay. As a parent, how do you feel like you need to approach this whole eating landmine, basically, of what to do with your kids. I know there's like so much advice out there and yeah. how do you make sure you don't pass along your issues to them? Something that I try not to do as well. Right. This is, yeah, this is my everyday conundrum. I don't really have an answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think the most important thing I have to keep on reminding myself is they're not me. My daughter is very much like me. She's built like me. She kind of has the same hang-ups or affinities as me. She's much smarter than me. And she's. It's, sometimes it's helpful for me to remember, like, she can draw. I could never draw. <laughs> like, it, there, th- there are specific things that she is really good at that I was never good at. And so it helps me feel like there will be things that I think are always going to affect her and they won't necessarily affect her. She's the one I focus on the most just because I think we do have so much in common. But I also, and also she's my oldest, so she's 11 now, and she's very aware of this book. She doesn't really know what it's about. She knows that, you know, that one person, I think I've described it to her as one friend is doing bad things to her body and the other one has to decide if she can help her or not. But she's too smart to like, to leave it at that. I know very soon she'll be like, how'd you know that? How did you know that people do those things? And then... I will have to talk to her, and I will talk to her by herself. Like, she's a very studious person, and she needs to kind of listen, process, and then go away for a little while and, like, knit or bake or do something that she's really good at that I've never been good at and come back with her questions. And when you were writing this book, where and when did you like to write it? How long did it take? What was your process like? That's a great question. I... I'm very old school. I have to write in a notebook with a big pen. I always have to start there. I have tricks to get myself to write. Like it usually has to start with a page or two of just blah, 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 and a grateful list every morning. And then I'll give myself like an assignment of, you know, what are 25 traits that I want this character to have? Or what are 25 secrets that this person might have. And then when I'm really trying to piece together a scene, it'll be like, write three pages of just what happens when they go to this party. So I try to really break it down. And then once I have a chunk in my notebook, then I transfer it all to computer and try to make it into a chapter. And so it kind of goes through a bunch of edits before it is really on the page. That's nice. It's like old school. You don't yeah. hear that that much. It's great. I, I have to. There's something about the physical contact of the pen. And I'm very particular. It's the, you know, the basic big yeah. pen with the blue cap. <laughs> Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Just write everything. Just write everything. And I would always say write by hand if you can. Because I think... It really moves a different muscle when it's coming out of your brain 
into a pen onto paper. If you can't do that, you know, record your thoughts into the phone and then write it that way. Just when you have a thought, don't let it slip away and think, oh, I'll remember that later. Yeah, I never remember those thoughts. Right. They, they never come back. No. <laughs> They're really awesome, too, I yeah. can tell you. <laughs> and what do you have coming next? You have, an, you have another book? I do. Yeah, in September, a book called Sanctuary. Sanctuary. Um, yes. <laughs> can you tell I did not sleep last night? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Sanctuary. There you go. And I co-wrote it with Paola Mendoza, who is an amazing artist and activist, and she's one of the co-founders of the Women's March. And, yeah, it's about a slightly futuristic world where everyone in America who's undocumented is being rounded up and taken away. And so a 17-year-old girl named Valentina has to get herself and her little brother to safety. And I think it's really awesome. Yeah, it sounds really awesome. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Thank Don't Have Time you. to Read Books. Thank you. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Just a reminder, go to Bliss Body Shop and enter code ZibbyOwens15 and get yourself a new pair of leggings for 15% off. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 